Hey there, this is Yarrow, and wow, do I have a great podcast interview coming up for you in a moment. Chris Peters just gave me an amazing story about how he launched a multi-million dollar business starting with a Kickstarter campaign. What he and his partner Rob sell are iPhone cases, and their very first one was a bottle opening iPhone case and you're going to hear the story of how they funded that on Kickstarter to the tune of about $28,000 which led to another Kickstarter campaign and then an entire business selling these iPhone cases uh, with people like Jamie Oliver and Aston Kutcher sending out tweets and Instagrams to uh, sort of show how they were using these products. However, before that interview begins in a moment, I just want to tell you about my exclusive EJ Insiders Interviews Club. This is a club for you if you like my free podcast, like the one you're about to hear with Chris or any of the other ones you've listened to in the past, you will definitely love my EJ Insider Interviews Club. It's more of the same, high quality interviews with successful bloggers, multimillionaire information marketers, email marketing specialists, I've grabbed them, I've done exclusive interviews, these are not available for free, and I put them inside this membership site. You get at minimum two new interviews every single month, and I also write an action plan, which is where I take what I believe are the key leverage points behind these millionaire bloggers and expert information marketers, and I extract what they do differently, highlight it, and put it into a 10 to 15 page report each month so that you can go away and apply what they do and get some big results. So these are the leverage points which leads to the 100,000, 200,000, half a million, million dollar results that these guys and girls have achieved. So if you want access to those exclusive interviews as well as the action plans directly from me, you need to join my EJ Insiders Interviews Club. You can do that at ejinsider.com forward slash interviews. That's ejinsider.com forward slash interviews where you can join the club and immediately get access to the first interview or you can grab all the interviews at once if you want the uh, upfront option. All right, that's it from me. I hope you enjoy this interview. Here is Chris Hello, this is Yaro Starek and welcome to an Entrepreneur's Journey podcast interview. Today I'm doing my first ever Melbourne interview, coming to you live from Melbourne where I've uh, just recently moved to and I'm interviewing one of the new friends I've met here in Melbourne. His name is Chris Peters who is one man, uh, part of a two-man team behind uh, Annex Products which uh, to give you the, the simple explanation is an iPhone case company. And these guys have had some ridiculously rapid growth in just a couple of years, have gone on to uh, you know, a two to three million dollar business, uh, which all started thanks to a Kickstarter campaign for the Opener, which is a bottle opener iPhone case. So, Chris, thank you for joining me. Hey, good evening, Gary. Thanks for having us, or having me. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rob is here in spirit as well. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm glad you brought the Australian accent to the equation here too, just to make it authentic. So, the for me, there's there's a lot of things I like to talk about here. We've got a Kickstarter campaign that worked well, which then kickstarted an entire multi-million dollar business now, which is growing rapidly around a few different types of uh, iPhone cases. And you know, it's a physical product, so I'd like to talk a bit about design, fulfillment, shipping, all the things that go together with that kind of business. But as is tradition on the Entrepreneur's Journey podcast. Can we just jump back in time first? And maybe since, since this is a partnership, uh, I know I, I asked you guys last time we had lunch how you met, which is kind of interesting. But for you personally, was there any entrepreneurial background or were you uh, an employee before you started Annex? Uh, I'd say there was definitely a bit of entrepreneurial spirit. Um, not a huge amount of background, but there was definitely uh, I was definitely one to discover fairly early on that I wasn't comfortable or that keen on working for other people. I'm not really one to like being told what to do or you know, what I can't do. Uh, so from I guess from an early age, I was always uh, had little businesses on the side or little uh, projects, I guess you'd call them, where you know, I was usually developing products or you know, ideas, something physical because that, you know, that's what I knew. Uh, and you know, from anything from uh, you know, printing T-shirts with a friend uh, through to manufacturing wake skates, uh, through to uh, you know importing cables to allow you to connect your Mac to a HDI TV um, before DisplayPort and you know HDMI was standard on the MacBooks. So uh, I've done wake, 
wake skateboard is that what you said yeah wake skate so are you familiar with wakeboarding yes sure so wake skating is kind of like crossing wakeboarding with skateboarding so you take a, a timber deck which looks very similar to a wakeboard uh, but you remove the bindings and you apply pretty much skateboard grip okay. so, so it's like so a flat skateboard uh, kind of yeah it's like it takes um, the it's a very it's a, I guess it's a more skillful sense of uh, you know boarding because you don't have the attachment like you do in wakeboarding where you got the bindings uh, but having that disconnect from the board you can do more skating style of tricks so kick flips shovets those types of things mm. and uh, was it a I guess that was something I you know developed a brand and built a website and also designed and manufactured the products out in the back shed at my parents place and within you know from zero to six months I had a pretty well recognized brand and really enjoyed the process of building it up and designing it and getting it out there and you know marketing these products but when it got to the point where you know I was just taking orders and going out to the back shed and making these things and shipping them out I lost interest in it fairly quickly. <laughs> it became more of a job than a uh, yeah. approach. Mass production as an individual, that can be a bit tricky, can't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so is your background uh, engineering-based? Because you know, you're, you're making physical stuff with your hands here. I, I wouldn't have a clue how to make a skateboard, especially not one that I feel comfortable selling to people. So you know, <laughs> yeah. what's, your, what's your background with that? Yeah, well, my background is an industrial designer, so I've always been, you know, pulling things apart as a kid and designing things. So I studied industrial design at Swinburne uh, pretty much straight out of high school, and from there have have worked for various, I guess you call them, design consultancies uh, in Melbourne. Spent four years at a large firm in Melbourne that did a whole range of things, but mainly specialising in, uh, I guess you'd call it medical devices, so medical machines that process or automate a lot of the laboratory work. So I got involved um, kind of in the deep end there with uh, working with a lot of engineers, um, industrial design work, prototyping, also uh, working on graphic interfaces, so doing a lot of digital design as well. Uh, so that's really kind of cut my teeth in a professional sense. Um, and then from there, I uh, took a year off, um, hence the wakeboarding interest. I uh, went over this, to the States and spent uh, six months with a friend working at a water skiing wakeboard school over in North Carolina in the deep south. And I uh, had a bit of a break and then came back and I was offered a position up in Sydney. So I spent another two years up there uh, working for a much smaller design consultancy, uh, which I thought was great. And that really gave me insight into, I guess, the ins and outs of running a small business. You know, I was going from a, a firm the size of the company I worked for in Melbourne, which was about probably 200 employees, to a company in Sydney that had less than 10 uh, and you know that was I enjoyed that a lot more because you got to basically get your hands involved in every aspect of the business. So you're dealing with customers, you're quoting them, you're sourcing components, you're dealing with suppliers, you're dealing with manufacturers. Um, you see the good and also the bad customers, and you know understand how to deal with you know, both of them. So that was a, a real big introduction for me. But then you know living in Sydney was tough, being away from all family and friends. So the eventually you know left that job and came back to Melbourne where the ultimate goal was to kind of start up my own design consultancy, but I, I felt I needed to kind of get some experience in the, the sales and, uh, well, not so much marketing, but more the sales side of things. So landed a job uh, selling CAD software using SolidWorks, which was a package I used you know, mainly through my you know six, seven years of uh, design experience. Uh, did that for about a year. Uh, got the kind of ins and outs of the sales side of things. Uh, didn't like a whole lot of it, but um, learned a lot about the processes and what's involved in doing so. And that gave me, I guess, enough now, so enough experience, or so enough confidence to go out and uh, set up my own design consultancy, uh, which I did, which I ran for about just on three years. Um, and towards the end of that was about when Rob and I got together and started uh, chatting about business and ideas and companies, and uh, always coming up with the the same idea of you know we should be doing something for ourselves other than building up other people's businesses. And I was at the point where I you know, was running my own business but um, had very quickly realized that a service business can be quite difficult, uh, especially kind of when, when you reach a plateau where there's only so many hours in the day and on, in a service setup you're only earning money for those hours you work. Uh, so you either, if you want to earn more money, you work more hours or you charge more. And uh, unfortunately, designers can't charge like lawyers. So there's kind of a limit where you put the threshold on. And I got to the point where I was like, to go further, I'd have to start employing people, which would then be more of a management role, more so than being a hands-on, you know, independent design consultant. And that didn't really sit too well with me. And both Rob and I uh, had many you know, afternoon chats about this and that, and decided that you know product businesses were definitely the way to go. 
just because they could be scaled much more than just working, you know, getting paid for your time. And I guess that's ultimately how we ended up, um, you know, where we are. So what did Rob bring in terms of your collaboration? It's pretty clear you've got the industrial design background. Did Rob bring something that you didn't have so much or is it just a case of having someone who's committed like you are to, you know, move you forward? Yeah, it was, I guess we've got fairly similar backgrounds um, from a technical point of view, but his background is in tool making more so than in design. Uh, so that kind of completed the manufacturing side of things. Uh, but that's really not a, in, in as much use these days because we have you know sourcing agents and tooling companies offshore in China that do a lot of that work for us. It's still good to have you know the oversight there too, if in case something gets a bit, uh, I guess if they throw a curveball at you, then you know we can work through it. And he's got the experience and knowledge to sort through that. But his real, I guess, role in what we're doing today is more in a sales and marketing side of things, and and that's something he built up in his previous role before we got out on our own. Uh, and that was heading up um, sales and marketing for a, a large company in Melbourne that manufactured uh, laser and plasma cutting machines. You guys have certainly got some interesting backgrounds with with the the hands-on nature of of these roles. So very different from me with being involved with information publishing. So I, I'm curious. I, this is where I'm completely lost. So you two are sitting down and you're thinking we want to have a product that we can sell so that we're in charge of our own business and it can grow to whatever size we want to let it grow or work on it to grow so our income's not capped. Uh, how did the idea generation lead eventually to basically a beer bottle opening iPhone case? <laughs> um, it's it's a bit of a roundabout story. We We didn't just start with the idea of making iPhone cases, we kind of toyed with a few businesses before we got into that. So we kind of stuck our toes in the water before we jumped in into the deep end. Uh, we originally, we were always, I guess we, we'd kind of known each other for a few years, but we'd actually kind of lived in parallel universes. You know, we'd always been involved with the same uh, friendship groups or activities, or but there was just one degree of separation. So. Um, when our girlfriends or you know now my wife and uh, Rob's fiance, uh, they're good mates from high school. So we ended up uh, myself and Sean moved into a house not far down the road from where Rob was living, and um, obviously because Pan was spending a lot of time with Rob, and we en- ended up spending a bit more time with each other and chatting and just kept bouncing ideas off each other, going you know um, there's got to be a better way to do this. And at the time, I was building my own website for my business um, and Rob was building one for his own company. And we started chatting about that saying, oh, look, websites are easy, but you know, no one really has a lot of idea about what to do with it. I'm sure someone would pay us for doing some websites. So just one Saturday afternoon, we set up a website building business. Um, and that was something we are doing kind of on the weekends and in the evenings. Uh, and got a few clients and started hosting a few websites um, and set up a proper company. And very quickly realized that we're going, what are we doing? This is a service business. This is crazy. Um, so very quickly got out of that. But before we completely shut it all down, we thought, well, let's have a crack at a, a product side of things. And Rob being involved in the, the laser and plasma cutting industry saw a bit of a gap for, I guess you'd call them small format laser cutters. So we're talking not quite desktop machines, but you know, nowhere near your big industrial machines. So smaller CO2 lasers that you could use for cutting you know, thin materials such as timbers, papers, um, plastics, things along those things. Uh, so we basically jumped on um, Alibaba and a few websites and found a few suppliers of laser cutting machines over in China, found what we thought were two good machines, um, put some money together, bought some and imported them over here and then got them up and running, which was a bit of a journey in itself and very quickly had uh, set up another website offering laser cutting services and machine sales. And within about a month of having those machines, uh, we'd bought two more, uh, which we'd sold pretty much before they'd even landed in Australia. And that kind of spun into one thing. And and that business very quickly um, went from a weekends and evening business into, you know, digging into my time because I was still running my design consultancy at the time. So I had a bit of ability to kind of, dedicate a bit more time to it uh, and Rob not so much uh, but it got to the point where we'd leased a, a factory which is where we're still based out of today uh, and I was taking up you know two three days of my time and I got to the point where I'm like Rob this is getting a bit serious now um, you know if I'm putting a lot more time in it than you are we need to sort something out here with your current employment status 
And he goes, oh, I'll sort that out. I'll, I'll just go work part-time, which I thought wouldn't happen because he was kind of their main sales guy. <laughs> and he came back the following day and he goes, yep, I'm working three days a week there, two days a week here. Let's get on with it. And um, so we did. And I, I asked him how to pull that off. And he's like, well, I gave him the ultimatum. It was either that or I quit completely. So him being the one sales guy, I didn't leave him a whole lot of option. <laughs> <laughs> so he ended up uh, working part-time and I was working part-time still kind of winding back my you know, design clients. And I think it was, I think we kind of had a, a bit of a chat about it and said, look, if it's going well by the end of the year, which was about six months away, um, you know, we'll go full-time on it. And I went away for a holiday for about a week and I got back and caught up with Rob and he's like, yeah, I quit. We were going on this thing full-time. <laughs> like, right. Right, yeah. And that was about the time when uh, the whole opener situation started. So we'd been watching, well, I'd been watching Kickstarter pretty heavily, uh, obviously being involved in, in the industrial design side of it. I was loving seeing all these designers come out with all these little cool product ideas and you know, throwing a video up on Kickstarter and then raising, you know, whatever it is, ten, twenty thousand, hundred thousand dollars for a little product idea. And I just kept sending these ones to Rob, going, check this out, this guy just raised hundred K for this, this guy raised twenty K for this. And this was back in mid two thousand eleven when not many people had heard of Kickstarter. So I had a few ideas that I was working on, mainly uh, one was the quad lock, which is our main product now, but it wasn't quite ready. I was still designing it and refining it. And uh, one afternoon, Rob called me up and he's like, you know, I've been looking at what goes well on Kickstarter and I think, you know, I've got a few ideas on what might work. Um, And he's like, iPhone cases seem to be fairly uh, successfully funded or, you know, they get a fairly good hit rate on Kickstarter. Um, So, you know, an iPhone case is a low risk thing and it kind of led to where the quad lock was going as well. But we thought, let's, you know, do something Australian, a bit quirky. So let's just chuck a bottle opener on the case. And like my initial reaction was like, ah, oh, it's a bit tacky. Uh, I knew it had been done before because I'd seen a few pretty average cases on, on the web. And he's like, yeah, but no one's really done it very well. So I'm like, well, yeah, fair enough. Um, so I, you know, jumped on CAD and I, we toyed it with a few ideas. I quickly designed something up, flicked it across to him, and he's like, man, that looks pretty sweet. So we went, yeah, cool, let's do it. So I sent off uh, some files over to China to get a prototype made. About a week later, I had, um, or a week or so later, I had uh, two prototypes in my hands and we pulled them out, clicked them on the phone. They seemed to work pretty well, but we'd made the blade, the actual opening blade, too thin. So we did a few tests and ended up bending both the prototypes and went, oh, well, we need to go a bit thicker. We tried to keep it really thin so it wouldn't add too much bulk to the case. But then we realized the, uh, the blade needed to be thicker to actually be functional. We thought, all right, we'll stiffen it up. So... We made another two prototypes, I think, or we got some blades cut out of different thicknesses of stainless to kind of weigh up uh, how thick we needed the actual steel blade to open a bottle without bending and set it on a good size, which was readily available. Got some more prototypes made. And another week or so later, we had um, fully functioning prototypes, which was kind of where the idea really got legs. We had something physical we could go and show people. Okay, now, just for people who are listening in, if you want to see it, it's at O-P-E-N-A case, C-A-S-E dot com, and you can see what uh, Chris is talking about right now. But, but keep going, Chris. Tell yeah. a good story. So that's, uh, well, that's the opener case, which is our first Kickstarter project. So we had that prototype, and, you know, we're still toying with the idea. We weren't, you know, jumping Kickstarter campaigns or, you know, getting too, too involved in it. Uh, but we had these prototypes, which we thought were pretty cool. So, you know, I had one on my phone, Rob had one on his. And every time we'd go out to, you know, a friend's barbecue or a party or a bar or whatever, we'd have them with us and we'd, you know, pull them out and crack open a beers. And the reaction we got from our friends was incredible. It was just instant like, whoa, what was that? Did you just open a beer with your phone? You know, <laughs> what is that thing? And, you know, we'd shout to them and explain it's a little little project we're working on. And, you know, being the type of guys we are, or especially my background, would always be working on some little prototype or design and you'd be showing people and, you know, getting some feedback and some uh, some opinions on it. Uh, but this one was strange. It was the type of product you'd show people and they'd, they'd love it straight up no matter who they were. And then you'd go, and, you'd go to put the product away or put it back in your pocket and they'd be like, I, I want to buy one. And I'd be like, oh, well, it's, it's just a prototype. It's not a real product yet. They're like going, well, I want to buy the prototype. I'm like, well, the prototype's not really for sale. They're like, well, how much did it cost? 
and you know you'd explain how much it costs and you know it's a fairly prototypes aren't that cheap but you know when you're saying you know it's cost us a couple of few few hundred dollars per prototype they'll be like all right i'll buy it off you you're like it's not for sale guys like these are just prototypes (laughs) and it just made us yeah it's a huge sign it was just like wow like if guys are willing to pay a couple hundred dollars for a product that's just a prototype um, this thing has really got some legs so that gave us a, a lot of confidence to actually, you know, get the thing out in the market, and um, kind of made a fast, made us fast track it to get it up on Kickstarter. Um, so that was the the first product and the, the first project that we launched on Kickstarter. It was our first entry into the crowdfunding scene. Um, we had to jump through a lot of hoops to to get on Kickstarter at the time because uh, they don't. Well, at the time, Kickstarter was only available to American citizens, so. You needed basically an American bank account, American credentials such as an EIN or equivalent of their tax file number um, and a few other bits and pieces to get certified for uh, the Amazon payment system that they use. So we had to jump through a lot of hoops to do that uh, but in the end it was it was all worthwhile because it all paid off. Okay, now I'd love to talk more about obviously the Kickstarter campaign but before we do that, just a little clarity on the actual manufacturing of something like an iPhone case. So mm-hmm. you said you sent files to uh, someone you found on Alibaba and a, a prototype gets sent back. Is, is What what files are those? I'm assuming they're CAD designs that you've created yourself, right? Sure, yep. Um, so as an industrial designer or an engineer, uh, to, to produce a product, you need to design it in uh, a sense that you can send files for manufacturing. So... The old school days, there would have been 2D drawings, the old style engineering drawings you'd see with a whole heap of dimensions and layouts and different views. Uh, these days, everything's done in 3D CAD. So you model up your design in a three-dimensional modeling platform. Uh, the main ones, or the one I use, is SolidWorks. Uh, so it's a fairly well-known CAD design package. And you basically create a 3D model of all the details to very high uh, tolerance and specification which you can export um, as a 3D file that you send off to a manufacturer and they can then open that data and they see exactly what you want to produce. So from that data you can get prototypes, which is what we had done. So they machined all the plastic parts and they would have laser cut or machined the actual stainless steel blade and then applied all the, applied all the different finishes such as you know, linishing the stainless steel or you know, painting the machine plastics. Uh, and that can be done relatively cheaply in China. There's hundreds and hundreds of prototyping companies out there that will just take your CAD data, will machine up what you want and send it back to you. And cases, they're usually cheaper and a lot faster than what you can get done locally in Australia. So you literally just got on your computer, put this thing together using your uh, computer-aided design software, send the files off to a manufacturer you find in on alibaba.com, and then a couple of weeks later, you get sent back an actual physical product that you can use, and you, it costs you a couple hundred bucks to get that made. Is, is that about yeah, right? That's pretty right. You wouldn't. Alibaba is probably not the best place to find prototyping companies. Okay. Um, it's great for sourcing existing components, uh, but if you're looking for prototyping in China, just jump on Google, and you'll find thousands of them. Uh, there's a good company uh, which was it's owned by a, a gent from the UK, but he's now based in China called Star Prototype. Uh, they're a really good one to check out. They're probably one of the uh, the well the fastest growing prototyping companies in China that I know of. Okay, so you've got your prototype. You've got some pretty obvious indications that it is a hit. You've jumped through the hoops to be able to actually do a Kickstarter campaign. What does it take to actually have a successful Kickstarter campaign for a bottle opening iPhone case? A uh, hell of a lot of people that want a bottle opening iPhone case. <laughs> so how did you find them? Cool. So we, we did some pretty smart things um, before we jumped on to Kickstarter. Uh, we kind of got to, as Kickstarter was fairly new, uh, we knew we'd have to drive a lot of traffic or a lot of customers to our Kickstarter project to get people back in the project. Um, and what we originally did is we thought we'd, build up a bit of a community before we would actually launch the project. So if you've read the uh, Seth Godin book on tribes, it's all about you know building a community and getting them to be raving fans about your products. So we set up a Facebook page, very simple, just uh, threw the idea up there, threw up a couple of renderings and a few photos and maybe a couple of videos of the prototype testing. 
And then I think we actually we got all our friends to jump on board and like it and share it around. And then I think we even set up a, a Facebook ad. So we ended up having about a thousand likes on the Facebook page, uh, which cost us you know maybe a hundred or two hundred dollars in worth of ads to get the numbers up. Uh, and we got people's feedback. We you know asked them about the product idea. So we basically did a bit of research before we even jumped on Kickstarter. We got people's feedbacks, what they liked in design, what colors they were interested in, things like that. And, you know, had a, a bunch of people that were just waiting for this thing to, to get produced even before it was on Kickstarter. So when we launched it on Kickstarter, we repaid the favor to these people for getting in early and helping us spread the word. So we had a early bird backer reward. So our standard reward for the, uh, an iPhone cable, the opener case, was $30. And we opened it up to early bird backers for half price. It was $15. And we had a very limited uh, number of those rewards. I think it was about 150 rewards. And as soon as we launched on Kickstarter and it was accepted, we posted a link on the Facebook page saying, yep, it's now on Kickstarter. You can basically jump on board and put your money where your mouth is and help make this product a reality. And those early bird backers sold out, I would say, in about half an hour. They just went like hotcakes. And in doing so, everyone emailed that link to all their friends saying, hey, check this out. If you get in early, you'll get a really good discount. So it got us a massive amount of traffic um, in the first few hours that it was launched. It really helped boost that campaign. What happened next? Because uh, I mean, I keep looking at everything to do with this thing and you've got a nice looking website. You've got Aston Kutcher and Jamie Oliver uh, doing testimonials. You've got some really professionally produced videos and a bunch of like uh, logos from, you know, as seen on Macworld, Sydney Morning Herald, TechCrunch. And I'm assuming a lot of this has all come about from the Kickstarter campaign. Is, is that all part of it? Um, not directly from the Kickstarter campaign, but that's when a lot of it happened. Uh, but that wasn't purely just for it being on Kickstarter. That went down... I'd say mostly to our uh, efforts in, you know, running the PR bandwagon and getting the message out to as many people as possible. Like as soon as that thing launched, we spent pretty much every day trying to get in contact with someone at TechCrunch, someone at Gizmodo, someone at the local paper. Uh, we tried to push it, um, you know, as hard as we could to get as much as much PR as we could. The Ashton Kutcher one uh, came along, I think that was just after the Kickstarter project had finished which was probably the worst timing in the entire world. Uh, we just finished funding. We hadn't quite had the website set up. All we had was a blog um, and it was hosted on a, a very cheap Australian host that had very you know, bad bandwidth and uptime. And that Ashton Kutcher post, our site went up like a 1,000% in about five minutes to the point where we would uh, used up all our bandwidth and the site just went down. So we contacted our host uh, who apparently said we're on an unlimited plan, <laughs> and they said you've used 200 gig of bandwidth. Um, you know, we'll we'll double that to 400. And we said, well, actually, can you go more than that because this is meant to be unlimited, and uh, we just use that up in about five minutes. <laughs> can you do something else for it? So they increased it to I think 500, and about an hour later it went down again. So he rang them up again, and I think he increased it to about a terabyte or something ridiculous, and it managed to kind of get through that. But by that time the huge flush of traffic had just kind of died down and had been diluted, so we missed that opportunity. But if we'd had an e-commerce store up at that point in time and were taking pre-orders, we would have made a killing. Yeah, wow. That's, that's one of the biggest mistakes we made is just not having a, a good solid website on a good host ready to go to either go, grab email addresses or to take pre-orders. Why was Ashton even doing that? Uh, he, it's just purely by coincidence. He's a fairly tech-savvy guy. He watches um, to see what hap you know, is happening in the other startup space or the tech space. I'm assuming he would have been a fairly big fan of uh, Kickstarter and seeing what was coming through, and he just liked the product. And tweeted it uh, out, did he? Or? Yeah, he, uh, he put it on the fancy, and then he tweeted about it saying, you can't be mad at this. <laughs> and, uh, and away it went. It was insane. And we tried to contact him. We tried to get him some product to thank him for it. Um, but everything we tried just kind of bounced back. <laughs> what so about if he's if he's actually listening? Um, thanks, Ashton. We owe you one. <laughs> what about um Jamie Oliver? Uh, Jamie Oliver tweeted, uh, Instagrammed about it. Oh, so cool. He got one through I think a, a food editor that we knew. We gave a couple to, and just by chance, um, she bumped into Jamie Oliver and gave one to him, and he just uh, posted a pick up on Instagram. He loved it. It was like sweet. Thanks, Jamie. That was um, that was probably about oh, 
not even a year ago, I'd say that was a more recent one. Okay. So that was way after you know the initial rush and the ride of the wave of the uh, the crowdfunding campaign and the right. big launch. So most of the other coverage, TechCrunch, Gizmodo, MacWorld, um, 9to5Mac, all these websites and, and publications, is that all just from you basically every day getting up and sending emails to journalists, getting on the phone, trying to get a hold of people, sending them samples? Is that what you were doing? Or I guess you didn't have that many samples. No, we didn't have samples. What we did have is we had a good story. Um, you know, we were Aussies on Kickstarter and Kickstarter was relatively new. Um, the iPhone was still fairly big news and, you know, the 4S or the 4 had just come out and the 4S wasn't far off. Um, and, you know, it was a quirky product. It had a bit of interest. It had a wow factor. Some people loved it. Some people hated it. So it got a bit of controversy there. Uh, it just it was a, you know, it was a good story. You know, two young Aussies going against the grain and really trying to have a crack. Uh, it just seemed to resonate with a lot of people. You know, we got, um, we had a, a woman ring up from uh, Rooters News in Singapore doing it and just wanted to confirm if the story was true. And, uh, you know, I said, yeah, it is true. You know, you're talking to the guys that did it. And she's like, look, I might run a story. I might not. I'll, I'll call you back in 15 minutes. So she called me back and uh, she said, yeah, look, I'm going to run a little snippet in the equivalent of the odd spot. And, you know, being such a, a huge resource for news, that just syndicated like crazy. That We had articles popping up all over the world. Um, our friend of Rob's called us from Bali saying that we're in the, uh, the local Bali Times you know, he's reading his breakfast and he read a little article about us. He's like, what the hell? <laughs> how, how, what's going on? What are these guys doing? How do they end up in the, uh, the denser part times or whatever it was? So, yeah, news can travel fast if you get it in the right, the right and place. And all of that coverage lead to backers of this Kickstarter campaign? Yeah, we, we drove over, I'd say, 80 90% of the traffic to our Kickstarter page. I think it's like 90% of backers of our project were first-time Kickstarter uh, customers. And first-time backers. So the actual being on Kickstarter didn't really help us that much, mainly because I guess Kickstarter wasn't that well-known. Uh, but, you know, we had to drive the traffic there. We had to get them you know, funding and getting behind the project. So uh, the actual Kickstarter itself just provided the platform, in essence, mm -hmm. and a small amount of, you know, backers that may have been browsing through. But, you know, being at that time, Kickstarter wasn't that popular, so it was quite easy for us to be up on the popular projects page. I think we stayed there for about three weeks just because we had big influx of backers on certain days. It just helped us push us up the ranks. What did you offer to the backers? Like what were the level of uh, rewards? Cool. So like I said earlier, the early bird backer was about $15 for an opener case. Uh, the standard backer was $30. Uh, we had mates rates, uh, which gave you two cases for $50. Uh, then it jumped up. We also had a, a limited edition Kickstarter edition. So that came in a choice of, you know, the standard black, white or Kickstarter green. And we actually laser engraved the Kickstarter logo, uh, your backer number onto the actual blade as a limited edition. And they were going for around $80 off the top of my head. And they were quite popular. One of our, um, I guess the biggest revenue side of things that generated the most revenue because it was a, a higher cost product. Uh, but we did sell quite a few limited edition ones. And we still bump into people that have got a limited edition Kickstarter opener case from, you know, mid-2011. <laughs> and they love it. They're like, I'm not ever taking this thing off. I'm never going to change it for a newer one or anything else. You know, this is a bit of history. So, And that's pretty awesome when you see that. Yeah, yeah. You've got dedicated fans. Yeah, it's pretty cool. How did you know the numbers in terms of, like, you said the prototype was potentially a couple of hundred. How did you figure out that you'd be okay selling it for, for 30 or whatever the, you know, the price was for the, the, the standard opener? Yeah. yeah, cool. So that's where you, you've got to do your research. So if you are launching a physical product uh, on any kind of crowdfunding play, or just in general, just making a physical product, you need to know all your costs associated with that. The majority of those costs will come out of your tooling so you need to make an injection molding tool to produce the plastic parts uh, and in our case we needed a stamping tool to actually stamp out the metal open a blade and that we again we went to you know websites like Alibaba or just Google searches to find good suppliers of um, injection molding services in in Asia uh, and we had we'd kind of I guess we'd had about oh, I found about 50 companies narrowed it down to probably five good ones and then just started chatting backwards and forwards and the ones that looked like they did similar products and had really good communications were the ones that we actually started sending data to. 
And once they've got the CAD data, same as like you'd send off for a prototype, they can send you back uh, tooling uh, quotations, uh, unit costs, and things like that. So once we had that, we had a bit of a feel, and but all three companies that we got, were, we actually asked for quotes from, were all pretty close to one another. So we knew a that they'll kind of being honest because they're all about the same ballpark, um, and b that you know they had the right. We're actually you know backing up the right tree because they all come back with you know similar costings and unit pricing. So we knew it was all that right. So. We had that before we uh, set our funding goal on Kickstarter because we need to know, you know how much money we need to tool it, how much per unit is going to cost, uh, and that gave us a bit of a feel for the uh, the funding goal we needed to raise. So all up, I think tooling was going to cost around ten or thereabouts. So we just uh, estimated that you know packaging and shipping would be around five. So we aimed for a funding goal of fifteen thousand. Uh, as luck would be, we managed to smash it. We got just under thirty. Uh, which was more than enough to cover the tooling and the initial production run uh, and also the shipping, which is one thing you don't really know until you get into it. And that's one thing, you know, in hindsight, you'd probably want to make sure that you you do work out the, the full costs of actually sending product from China to warehouses and then from warehouses to your backers because uh, shipping makes up a huge cost of what we do today, just moving things around the world at a, a rapid pace. Just a couple more questions in the Kickstarter campaign, and then we can you know talk about what happened afterwards. Uh, you mentioned the rewards. What else did you do? Was it a, like I'm assuming a video, but you showed the prototypes in the video. Anything yeah. else in your Kickstarter campaign? Yeah, we sure did. We the video uh, is is key to all Kickstarter campaigns. That's kind of like your pitch. You've got a especially with a physical product, you want to be showing it whether it's in a prototype form or whatever. Uh, showing it how it works in use, you know, giving some lifestyle scenarios of how it might work and uh, be handled. And that's our video was basically just our story. It was like, you know, we're two guys from Melbourne, we come up with this idea, uh, we've prototyped it, we've tested it, and it works, and here's what it does. And we showed people what it was. And then the rewards uh, were quite simple, like went through before. They're, you're basically pre ordering when you're, you're trying to back a product. So, you know, we said, we need money to make this, uh, and if you give us X amount of money, and we reach our target, we will go and make it and we will ship you one of these units. So that's pretty straightforward and simple. We didn't go too far left of field, you know, like providing, you know, taking people out for dinner or, you know, organizing concerts or things like that, <laughs> especially when, you know, a lot of our backers were based in the US. It would have been extremely difficult and expensive for us to do that. Uh, but we did also have one, we had kind of a, I guess, a fallback backer option, which you're not allowed to do on Kickstarter anymore, but we, we had retail pack options so that if you know, you'd know you seen the product on Kickstarter and you wanted to back it and you had a store you wanted to sell them in, we had like a bulk discount. So I think for about $1,500 got you, uh, I think it was about 80 or 50 openers or so in one that would have been 50 or 100 openers. So that was a retail pack. So we figured that if it was getting towards the end of it and we hadn't quite reached our goal, we could just get some mates to jump on and back those retailer packs, which goes all against Kickstarter's rules. And fortunately enough, we didn't have to do that. But funnily enough, a few retailers did jump on and grab some of those packs, which really helped you know, kick up the funding goal in you know, big leaps and bounds. I'm just curious about the video. Did, did you just sit in front of a camera or you two guys sitting in a couple of chairs and tell your story or was it a bit more professional produced? Pretty much. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm we, seeing uh, a lot better videos now on your... You know your your pages and things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've we've stepped it up a lot from from those days. I think we uh, we borrowed a mate's digital SLR. Uh, we, like you said, we sat in front of a camera. We kind of got a bit of a script together, and then we took about a hundred takes to try and get one good one. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's probably the hardest part of uh, a Kickstarter campaign is actually doing your video, and we've got a lot better at it now. Uh, but yeah, that was so. Just film the story, talk a bit about the product, and then show the product in use and. That was um, that was fun in itself. We had to, you know, film this thing opening a lot of beers. Uh, so we we contacted. We got smart. We thought we're not going to go buy a heap of slabs because that's just crazy. We'll have to drink them all. We contacted an Aussie company, Brew Beer, and another one up in Sydney, uh, Vale Ale, and showed them the product. Showed them uh, what we're going to do with it on Kickstarter, and they went, "Yep, that's great." And we just asked them for a few slabs. And a week later. Uh, Korea rocked up with a bunch of slabs and we had a heap of test material. <laughs> Did anyone drink the beer? <laughs> yeah, look, we drank as much as we could. Um, but we got to a point where we had a really weird, awkward situation at one point where 
we're trying to get a really good shot of a close-up of uh, the opener cracking open a beer. So I had Rob laying across a table, about four Bunning spotlights that we'd got on the cheap, and me on the camera at a kind of down low trying to get real close to the bottle to get a really good shot of it opening at about 9am with beers open everywhere. Like it just looked like a, a party had been on the night before. And uh, a courier walk, rocked up to drop something off. And he's kind of like walked in, dropped the package down, and go, there you go, boys. And he's kind of looked up and then had a kind of look around, had a real strange look on his face. Kind of was going to ask a question but then decided not to and then just casually sidestepped out of the uh, the door and left. <laughs> it's just because it looked extremely strange. <laughs> Okay, well, um, so the Kickstarter campaign goes well. You, you do almost 30000 so almost double your goals. Yep. How does that become a multi-million dollar business? Well, Kickstarter is just that. It's a, a way to kickstart your idea and, and your business. Um, you know, we didn't see it as the be-all and end-all. We thought this is an avenue to take a good idea and, uh, and see where we can go from here. So, you know, like I said, we had, we had the screw up with Ash when Ashton Kutcher tweeted about it and we didn't have anything in place. We really should have, and in hindsight, that was the one thing we, we screwed up on. We didn't have an e-commerce site ready to take orders as soon as the, the crowdfunding campaign had finished. We, in our last week of funding, we had a massive media wave. Like Everything we'd been trying to establish in those four weeks of just harassing everybody trying to get PR out there had kind of all come to play in that last week, and things really started ramping up there. And conveniently, our Kickstarter campaign finished. And we still had this mass amount of press coming through and people going to our website. And we're like, well, let's not waste this. Let's set up a site and start taking pre-orders. So we jumped on a Shopify, Shopify platform and set up a store in literally like an hour or two um, and set it up, got ourselves a credit card gateway and started processing orders or taking pre-orders. And in the – obviously, you know, when you finish your Kickstarter project, you've got um, – you've raised all your money you know, a week or two goes, they release the money to you. Then you've got to go out and you've actually got to order the tool, all the production parts, sort out your packaging, logistics, all that. That takes time. So with from that end of the Kickstarter campaign to when we actually had products, we had about two or three months um, of just taking pre-orders. And in those two or three months of taking pre-orders, we raised a hell of a lot more money than we did on Kickstarter just because the hype had really taken off. Um, people saw it was going to be a real product. We're very clear on it where now, you know, estimated delivery time frame was. And it just flowed on from there. Okay. Now, so, okay, because this, this led to another product, obviously. We haven't mentioned or you briefly mentioned Quadlock that you were working on before Opener, the beer opening one, came yeah. about. Does, um, like, what's the time frame here? This happened in 2011, the Kickstarter campaign. It's, it's 2013 now. You said you've got all this interest coming and you're taking pre-orders so that means you're actually getting cash through your system so you can go and order more product and you know start setting up proper websites like um, shopify is what you mentioned as your e-commerce platform I, I can only imagine this is like an incredible busy time because you're like your websites look amazing now they look really good you've got professionally produced video you've got professionally produced photography of all the products yeah, you look like a, a quite a large um, company, and I, I know it's only four of you guys right now too. So I'm assuming two years ago when all this was coming together, it was mostly just you two. Can you sort of walk me through the last two years in a highlight reel, <laughs> Chris, if you can? Uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, I guess when the opener went well on Kickstarter, that's about the time I think we started going full time with everything. Um, so we still had the laser business on the side. Um, and a few other things that started taking off. And I guess when we saw the potential with the, um, the opener and even the, the quad lock on Kickstarter, that's when we, spent, we started to take it a bit more seriously and we ended up employing someone to run the laser business for us because that, um, that freed up a lot of our time. Uh, and ultimately after a while, I think he'd been running it for about 12 months, we ended up selling it to him to um, get it off our plate completely. Uh, which just allowed us to have a bit more clarity and direct or direction on where we wanted to take it. So the the opener really gave us a bit of funding to finish off the development of the quadlock, and that gave us. Um, well, that was our second project. So we launched that uh, at the end of two thousand and twelve. 
or sorry, 2011, and it finished funding in January 2012. And we ran that one over Christmas um, for a few other reasons, but that turned out to be not a great idea. Uh, there's two weeks over Christmas, everyone's on holiday, no one's on the internet, no one's trolling around looking for cool things, and our funding graph just went dead. So we equivalently got like a good week at the start and a good week at the end, and about I think we ran that one over six weeks, so about three or four weeks in the middle where it just plateaued. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty standard for... Um, for a lot of crowdfunding campaigns, but ours was, was highlighted by the fact that it was running over Christmas. So if you are going to run a Kickstarter campaign or any crowdfunding, don't do it over Christmas holidays. Just can you give us a quick rundown of what Quadlock is for people listening yep. in? Cool. So Quadlock was our second product. It, uh, Funnily enough, was that the original idea I had that I wanted to produce on Kickstarter. It, uh, When the first iPhone came out in 2005, I think it was, I got one over from the States because they weren't released in Australia for, for quite a while. Uh, and it was awesome. It blew my mind. It was, you know, having that kind of power in your in your phone or in your pocket was awesome. And I was doing a fair bit of writing at the time, and I really wanted to use the phone on my bike so I could see my maps. Um, I just moved to Sydney at the time. Uh, it would make it a lot easier for me to navigate around instead of having to stop every half an hour and pull it out of my phone, pull it out of my pocket to see where I was. So I started looking around for really good uh, mounting systems, and there was just nothing on the market for it. Uh, there was a lot of big bulky cases or really flimsy things that could kind of half do it but uh, just didn't do the, the whole process justice. So I started working on this idea of, you know, instead of having just a big cradle, why don't we integrate half the mount into the back of the case and then have it would enable us to make the physical mount on the bike to be a lot smaller. So when you're not using it, you don't have this big ugly thing hanging off your bike. Uh, and in doing so, I had to come up with a really ingenious way of allowing it to attach on, but lock on in a way that, you know, if you crash your bike into the back of a truck, your phone wasn't going to fly off or come out because you know, the iPhone's not a cheap piece of kit. You don't want that flying off your handlebars. So that was the idea. And once we refined it to a point where we're happy with, um, again, we did the same thing. We prototyped it. We showed people. We, uh, we built a, a Facebook page. We pretty much mimicked what we did with the opener. We chucked it up on Kickstarter. Uh, we needed to raise a bit more money this time because there was a little bit more tooling involved. Uh, we had a funding goal of 20000 ended up raising just on forty, I think. So, again, just doubled our goal and uh, went from there on. So, did the same thing, built a, an e-commerce website for it, which we had up and running as straight after when the Kickstarter project finished this time, which was great. Uh, took pre-orders again for the last two or three months while producing it. Uh, when it, the production came through, we shipped them all out and then continued on taking orders from there. And uh, it, it didn't have the same hype and same rush that we got out of the opener. Uh, you know, that had that kind of quirky story going for it. Uh, but it's definitely more of a solution product. It's something that people are out there looking for, which allows us to advertise and market to them using channels like Facebook or Google Ads, uh, whereas the opener was a little bit difficult because people don't go looking for an iPhone bottle opener case because not many people know one exists. That's something you kind of had to put in front of people and, and then they would buy it. Whereas the Quadlock's a solution product, so it's really a lot easier for us to market that and, and get it places. So from that iPhone bike mount, we've expanded the, the Quadlock range into a whole different realm of different things. We've got not only the bike mount, uh, we've got a wall mount, uh, we've just released a car mount, which we partnered with a company in Germany to produce, which is probably one of the best car mounts on the market. Uh, we're about to release a belt clip, um, working on a jogging sports armband, uh, an S4 case for it's our first foray into the uh, the Android world. So it's just this ecosystem, um, and it just has evolved and expanded into all different types of things. So it's not like you have a, a mount on your bike that you can put your phone in, but it's a different mount for your car. So with the Quadlock, you can have the one case that works with all our mounts. Mm-hmm. So you can take your phone from your bike, you can then snap it into your car, you can go home, you can snap it on the wall while you're cooking dinner or beside your bed while you're charging it. Uh, you can just do so much with it. Like it's one case with multiple mounting solutions. For people listening, if you want to check it out, it's at quadlockcase.com. That's Q-U-A-D-L-O-C-K-C-A-S-E.com. There's a video there you can watch too to see it in action. So, uh, Chris, how does all this stuff sell? Like where are your customers coming from? I'm assuming you know Kickstarter campaigns die down and you said the, the press coverage wasn't quite as dramatic for this product. But for both products, though, with Opener and Quadlock, you must have had to do some sort of ongoing marketing now to keep getting customers. So how do people find out about it? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, especially with Quadlock, because people are looking for a solution. 
we can get to them through advertising. And uh, I'd say ninety percent of our business still comes from online sales. We advertise pretty heavily on Facebook and Google Ads, and it works well for us. We've we've tried many times to to get into retail, and we've tried a few different approaches, uh, and it's it's hard. <laughs> It's, it's been our biggest challenge for our business to try and get products into retail. Um, and I guess we are making traction in there finally, uh, but it just takes a lot longer than what we're used to. You know, we're, we're used to doing things online where we've got no limitations and you know, as soon as you can produce it, you can start selling it. Uh, and that's kind of how we've you know, grown the business so quickly. But when you're dealing with retailers and distributors and stores that have buying seasons and cycles they go through products um, it's just a it's a very different business model and it uh, can be a lot riskier and uh, we've been burnt we've partnered with uh, a few people that um, just haven't come through with the goods and they've cost us a lot of money okay uh, now i've got a lot of questions with um <laughs> everything here in terms of how it all works now i don't want to we've already gone quite a long time so i don't want to drag this on too much but uh, you've got a great website, you've got great videos, you've got great product imagery, you're buying Google AdWords, you're buying Facebook ads, and you're selling obviously tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of product now in order to have a you know two or three or four million dollar company. And there's not many of you in this company still too. So how does all of that get done? Who does all these things? Who builds your websites? Who runs the ad campaigns? Who handles customer service, fulfillment, telephone orders, all those sorts of things? How does that come together? Uh, it may sound surprising, but we do just about everything in-house except for order fulfillment and, well, of course, production. So, like, I'm still in, in the main designer that designs all the products. Uh, Rob handles pretty much all the sales and marketing. Um, our two guys on the team, so you've got Joel and you've got Doug, they look after everything else, well, most everything else for us. So they do the customer service, they do chasing up of orders, things like that. Um, so we're still, I guess, a fairly small company, but we've been very smart in how we've done it. So instead of employing, employing a whole bunch of people to do different aspects for us, we look at using you know, external systems that can do things and scale up as we need them. So one of our you know, biggest assets is using a 3PL system, which we use in the States, well, it's UK and US, called Shipwire. So 3PL is a third-party logistics provider. So how Shipwire works is we pay for storage of our stock in there, whichever warehouses we choose to use, and then we can allocate orders to those warehouses, and they will basically pick pack the product and send it to our end customers. And Shopify and Shipwire have a really good inter integration. So if you go on one of our websites and you're looking at one of our products, when you go to the checkout, it will ask you to enter in your address, and when it's got your address information, it knows the closest warehouse to send it from and what shipping options are available from that warehouse. So it will calculate your shipping costs based on that warehouse and where you want to send it and it will give you options to choose from. Once you choose that and you go through and place the order, it will get processed by our back end. It will get spit out to that warehouse and someone will physically take that product off the shelf, put it in a box and send it to you and it will rock up on your doorstep. And the scary thing is we never see any of this. So. You know, 90% of the product we manufacture goes to our warehouses in the US, the UK, and soon uh, China as well. And we don't touch it. We basically only see it when the end customer gets it and sends a photo and posts it up on Instagram. So a lot of it's done remote. Like we, we're at a point where we could virtually run this business from anywhere if we didn't have to look after the Australian orders locally. It must have been quite a surreal feeling knowing that someone came to your virtual website, gave some money to you, a product got sent and they got it without you ever touching any of that process. You know? Yeah, it's, it's awesome when it works. <laughs> yeah, amazing stuff. Okay, Chris, well, um, there's so much to this that I'd, I'd love to break down, but it's, it's uh, you know, we've, we've only got one hour-ish here to talk, so I don't, I don't want to talk too long. Yeah, we can ramp for a while. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I think I'd like to start wrapping it up here. First question for anyone who uh, is interested on, I guess, following your footsteps with this, you know, perhaps the Kickstarter campaign, but also just the production of a physical product. What do you give them as advice to get started, especially if they're still working a day job and they're, you know, they've got an idea for a product and they'd love to follow in your footsteps? Yeah, sure. Um, the easiest thing is to to get a working prototype. There's nothing 
that really explains your idea more than actually having it physically in your hands to show people. And you can do that so cheaply. You know, you don't have to use um, CNC centers over in China. You can get them 3D printed from local mobs. Or you can also use um, an online service, shapeways.com, which is an awesome way to get stuff 3D printed at very low cost. And their turnaround time is pretty quick as well. And, yeah, so prototyping your idea is the first step. Uh, the next step would be to, I guess, validate the idea. And one of the best ways of doing that is with something like Kickstarter. Not only does it validate your idea, which is probably one of the most valuable things of being on any kind of crowdsourcing or crowdfunding site, it proves that there's a market for it and people are willing to put money down for it. And it also gives you the initial capital to get the idea up off the ground. So it's, you know, with these systems out there, it, there's nothing really stopping you from doing it, you know. Before crowdfunding and Kickstarter exists, you know, it was you had to put up your own money for uh, tooling and production or you'd have to get investment from someone and, you know, it's just it was so much risk without, you know, knowing if the product's going to sell. Whereas now you can eliminate 90% of that risk by going out there and, you know, checking that people like it, they will pay for it, um, you know, how much it's going to cost, you know, where you can produce it um, and the rest is just trivial. It's, you know, it's just... It is so much easier than it was, you know, five years ago that um, there should be nothing stopping you doing it these days. Mm-hmm. Where do you guys want to take it next? We're really pushing the quad lock system at the moment. Um, we really see that more than not just a, as an iPhone case or a mounting system but more of as a, an ecosystem of integrating digital technology into your, your fitness activities. So, you hear a lot of people talking about digital fitness with things coming out like the Fitbit or the, you know, the Jawbone or um, there's a few other bits and pieces that all track your movements and activities and more and more people are doing that. They're starting to get data on you know, their, their activities and their day-to-day life that they do uh, and so much of that is driven by your iPhone. So we want to enable people to attach and mount their iPhone in places where you couldn't necessarily use your, your iPhone or your smartphone before such as riding your bike, going for a jog. You know, fishing in your boat, even you know, playing a round of golf. So you know, that's where we really see. We just we're expanding that ecosystem of cases and mounts, and you know, we want to make that the number one mounting system in the world for mounting a smartphone. Very very cool. So websites, Chris. What what do you want to show people who've uh, listened all the way to the end of this interview? <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, well, the two sites for our, or the main two sites for our products. Uh, you've mentioned both of them. So open a case. O-P-E-N-A-C-A-S-E dot com uh, for the world's coolest iPhone bottle opening case. Impressive friends. Yep. <laughs> and the quad lock case, so Q-U-A-D-L-O-C-K-C-A-S-E dot com. We're actually working on an overhaul of that site, which we hope to have out by the end of the year. So that's going to be looking pretty sweet coming up. I think it looks pretty sweet still now, but you know. Well, it works, yeah. yeah, that's, yeah. You've got to have a site that converts, yeah. Yeah. Okay, thank you, Chris, for taking the time to tell that whole story. Really compelling stuff there and amazingly fast results too. But it sounds like you put the work in throughout the whole process. So I hope it keeps growing for you. Yeah, cheers, Jared. Thanks for having us on. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for joining me. And uh, for people listening in, if you want more interviews like this with Chris, you can head to my blog, entrepreneurs-journey.com or Google my name, Yarrow, Y-A-R-O, and you'll find my podcast there with all the previous interviews. I also encourage you to sign up via iTunes to subscribe and would really appreciate a review. If you could give me uh, the full five stars, that would make this podcast even better and I'd really appreciate it. Thanks again for listening in and I'll talk to you on the next interview. Bye-bye. Well, there you have it, the interview with Chris. I hope you loved it as much as I loved listening in and doing the interview. There was so much to learn. These guys have created an amazing company, so I hope you took lots of notes. If not, or if you need to get any of the links, you can go to my blog and find the, uh, the show notes to go along with this entry with all the links that we mentioned. Uh, Before I wrap this up, I just want to invite you again to take part in my interviews club if you have not yet joined. If you love this podcast and you want more of the same, you can join my EJ Insiders exclusive interview club and I'll send you at minimum 
two brand new interviews every month, sometimes some surprise extra bonus interviews as well. You'll also get access to my podcast vault, which includes all the other interviews I've ever done, and some bonus interviews, which are interviews I did for previous training courses that were only available in those training programs. So you're basically getting every single interview I've ever done for products as well as publicly, all in this one club. I also have action plans in this membership site which highlight the key leverage points from the brand new exclusive interviews that I conduct each month. These are interviews with people like Albers Falla and Terry Dean and Jeff Walker and Rich Sheffrin and Eben Pagan. Lots of people there who make money from email marketing, with blogs, from doing product launches, everything you'd like to know about essentially making a living from selling information products and using a blog as a platform for online income generation. If that sounds exciting to you, please go to ejinsider.com forward slash interviews where you'll find all the information about the program as well as some sample interviews you can listen to from some of the people in the program and uh, sign up there. I know you'll love the interviews. If you love this interview with Chris, there's plenty more in there for you, all featuring me as the person conducting the interviews. That's ejinsider.com forward slash interviews. Thanks again and I'll talk to you very soon.